following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I want to share with you today a story out of the book of Jeremiah, beginning with chapter 13. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle. Put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So the Lord is saying, go and get a pair of shorts, Jeremiah, and put them on, made of linen. But don't wash them. Just wear them day after day. Don't change your shorts. Just keep them on. Don't change the girdle. Just keep it on. Don't wash it. And then the word of the Lord came again unto him. We don't know how long. But certainly time for that pair of shorts to become quite dirty and filthy. Then he says, verse 4, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise and go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So he's told to go to a place where there is dampness. In this 
13th chapter of Jeremiah, he's being told to take the dirty shorts, take them off at the Euphrates River, and there hide it in a hole of the rock. In other words, where the moisture can get to it. So he went, and he hid the pair of shorts or the girdle by the Euphrates River, just as the Lord had commanded him. And after many days, the Lord said unto him, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take the the girdle or the pair of shorts from thence which I commanded thee to hide. And so he goes to the Euphrates River, and he digs up this this girdle, this pair of shorts. And behold, the scriptures say the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. It is now a garment that he can't even put on. I'm sure it's now rotted. The linen has rotted. There are probably holes in it. There's mold. It is utterly disgusting. He wouldn't even want to touch it. So now... I imagine he came marching back into Jerusalem with this pair of shorts, this girdle, maybe extended on a stick. That's just how I see it. And everybody sees him walking down the street with with a rotten girdle, a rotten pair of shorts, eaten away by mold, filthy, dirty, dank and dark. And I wonder if people didn't begin to follow him to see what is Jeremiah doing? What is this about? And the word says, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuses to hear my words which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk with other gods to serve them and to worship them shall even be as this girdle, this pair of shorts, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for praise and for glory, which they would not hear. So Jeremiah spoke this word to the children of Israel. It's a very painful word because they thought they were doing just fine. Thank you very much. They had no comprehension of the wickedness of their hearts. I received a text this morning a text of encouragement from one of you who listens to this radio broadcast found in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verse 5. They preface it by saying, the revival we need in one phrase. And now the quote begins. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The end of the commandment is charity. Self-sacrificing love out of a pure heart, of a good conscience, of faith. Frankly, we've not walked that way before the Lord. We've had strong opinions. We've had judgments. We're easily offended. breaks my heart there is a a wonderful brother in Christ that I cherish and love I only met him one time he was at a Holy Spirit revival in Sarnia Canada in Ontario and I had the opportunity to sit down with he and Armin Gesswine Armin was one of the leaders and ministers in the Welsh Revival. He's now gone on to his reward. But this man, Richard Owen Roberts, had just a short time before written an article 
and we sat and discussed this article that he had written as he shared with us his heart for the solemn assembly. Now, Richard Owen Roberts is a pastor and evangelist, an international evangelist. He is a man who weeps for the church As we talk through this solemn assembly, he believed with all of his heart that this was going to have to happen in the church or judgment would come and destroy America. As you know, I'm calling for a very short solemn assembly on this coming Sunday, on Father's Day, to celebrate our Father in Heaven. The National Prayer Chapel needs healing. It needs repentance. It needs forgiveness. And I, with them, need the same. I'm inviting you to come to the National Prayer Chapel this Sunday for a solemn assembly. And as the Lord leads, we may move to a full-day solemn assembly but I want to share with you the biblical background that he wrote in an article entitled Solemn Assembly, The Sad Fact. Now, he's given he's given me written permission to read this on the air and to post it on our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. If you're interested, you can go there and look up all the passages of Scripture, and you can read exactly what I'm going to share with you now. He writes, most professed Christians have never heard of a solemn assembly. There are not less than 12 revival movements in the Old Testament. While each of these revivals is very different from the others, there are at least four factors preceding each revival which they all had in common. The first, every revival of the Old Testament is preceded by a period of moral and spiritual decline among the people of God. As illustrations of this problem, consider the preceding the revival of Exodus 32-33. The decline included the building of a golden golden calf and its worship. While the revival under David was preceded by a period of more than six decades in which the Ark of the Covenant of God was out of its rightful place in Jerusalem. I don't think any of us today, I'm going to add commentary as I read, I don't think any of us today can even begin to imagine that there has not been a a tragic spiritual decline among the people of God in America. Number two, revival is always preceded by a righteous judgment from God. Without any exception, Old Testament revivals have always been preceded by some kind of righteous judgment from God. While some of these judgments are immediate and final, resulting in deaths among the wicked, Others are gracious and remedial, resulting in brokenness, prayer, repentance, and extraordinary seeking of God's face. And we certainly see today the judgments of God. I'm going to share more on that in just a moment. Number three, the rising up of an immensely burdened leader or leaders. And you can understand that by just looking at the revivals, the revival of Moses, the revival under Samuel, the revival under King David, the revival under King Asa, under Jehoshaphat, Jehoiada, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Joel, Obviously, in each case, God himself raised up a leader who was under the heavy burden of moral and spiritual needs of his people. The words of Moses in Exodus 32:32 forcefully emphasize this. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. If not, please blot me out from thy book, which thou hast written. Some extraordinary action 
While this action varies from revival to revival, the most common action taken was that of a solemn assembly. Note again the record in the revivals themselves. In Exodus, Moses took the tent and pitched it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. He called it the place of meeting and required everyone who sought the Lord to go outside the camp, away from the place of sin, to the tabernacle to meet the Lord. Samuel required all of Israel to gather at Mitzpah in a solemn assembly where he prayed for them and they fasted and they confessed their sins. In Samuel 6.14 and in 1 Chronicles 13.18, after a bad start in sinning against the Lord by moving the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart, which was the Philistine method, David and his people moved it according to the word of the Lord, and in joyful humiliation he danced before the Lord with all of his might in a linen ephod. Having laid aside his crown and royal robe, he acted as a common man among common men. While no mention is made of a solemn assembly in the second Samuel account, it is detailed in the parallel passage in First Chronicles. Asa called a solemn assembly in Jerusalem where the people entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their hearts, with all their souls. Jehoshaphat called a solemn assembly throughout all Judea and Jerusalem, and the people fasted and sought the Lord. Jehoiada, in a solemn assembly, made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then they proceeded to cleanse the land of all evil. Hezekiah and the leaders established a decree which was very extensively circulated, requiring all the people to gather for a solemn assembly and the celebration of Passover. An entire fourteen days were devoted to seeking the Lord and worshiping Him. Well, you can look at all of these different people who called for solemn assemblies in the Old Testament. Consider the situation at the time of the solemn assembly called by the prophet Joel. The people, as was common, were guilty of flagrant sin, which had not been confessed, had not been put away. And God visited them with a remedial judgment, a plague of locusts of such proportion that nothing like it had ever happened before. What the gnawing locust had left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has, has left, the creeping locust have eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. In addition to the terrible plague of insects, a fierce drought affected the land. The drunkards wailed because they had no new wine. The priests mourned because the grain offering and the libations were cut off from the house of the Lord. The fields were ruined. The land itself mourned. The vine dressers wailed and the beasts groaned. While the herds of cattle wandered aimlessly because there was no pasture for them, the people themselves wailed like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. If you're just joining me, I'm reading a piece by Richard Owen Roberts entitled A Solemn Assembly. It is the answer to our sin. You know, let me just add, please, some of you recognize that the National Prayer Chapel is utterly devastated, that I'm utterly devastated, that members of our congregation are utterly financially devastated. We have to recognize that Washington, D.C. is indeed devastated, and the churches of Washington, D.C. are devastated. We are not having the harvest God would have us have. Piety and righteousness have been lost in strong opinions and pride and judgments. It has been lost in biting and devouring. The prophet issued orders, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land 
to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. This is something the children are to participate in, even the infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room, out of her bridal chamber. In other words, cancel your wedding plans. Cancel your honeymoon. Let the priest and the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and do not make thine inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. It's because of this that I have canceled my wedding. I have broken that engagement. I'm going to wait upon the Lord for revival. I have offended. I have broken hearts. And I am deeply repentant. I've even been arrogant. It's time to call a solemn assembly. It's time for the Lord to come and heal us, restore us. In the National Prayer Chapel, in your church, in Washington, D.C., Promises were offered as encouragement. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army from you. In response to the corporate repentance of the people, through the use of divinely ordained means of the solemn assembly, the land rejoiced and was made glad. The pastures, the wilderness turned green. The trees and the vines bore fruit, and the fruit born was not ordinary, but extraordinary, for God moved the rainy seasons closer together and caused the sun to shine upon the earth, so that the threshing floors were full and the vats overflowing. So great was the blessing bestowed by God who delights in a broken and contrite people that he made up to them the years they lost under the locusts. The people had plenty and were satisfied and praised the name of the Lord who had dealt wondrously with them. They knew that God was in their midst, that he only was God, that there was none other. Now, unfortunately, some professed Christians will be disinclined to seriously think of a solemn assembly. They're too busy with parties, social events. They're too filled with their own hurt, their own anger. So they're not interested in a solemn assembly. He writes they would do well to weigh the entire season of preparation prior to Pentecost in the light of solemn assembly and see that those days in the upper room were indeed a solemn assembly if ever the history of the world had one held. Not only were solemn assemblies a very common aspect in the revivals of the Bible, but they were also very important in the life of believers in America during its early years. For verification of this, one has only to consult the Sparge collection of early American pamphlets and the Weeder Library at Harvard University. There will be found a large number of sermons that were preached by first days and solemn assemblies, which were frequently called and earnestly attended by Americans believing prior to the general decline of true Christianity, which characterized the 20th century America. Our fathers believed God was offended by sin. 
They themselves were deeply troubled, both by the existence of personal sin in their own lives and by the presence of unconfessed corporate sins in the churches and in the nation. They regarded natural calamities as manifestations of the displeasure of God. They allowed such events, God allowed such events as earthquakes, fires, volcanoes, epidemics, floods, and droughts to prompt them to special seeking of God's face in fasting, prayer, and corporate repentance. They also sought the Lord in solemn assemblies in connection with wars, with murders, with rapes, believing such outbursts of wickedness to be directly related to the general decline of moral and spiritual life in the churches. Like any other God-ordained means of grace, the solemn assembly has the potential of being corrupted. The very severe denunciation of Isaiah 1, 10-15 clearly indicates God's contempt for solemn assemblies that have lost their heart and have become mere form and ritual. He wrote, Bring your worthless offerings no more. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I weary of bearing them. But we must not think professed American Christians have abandoned the solemn assembly because of its perpetual misuse and abuse. More accurately, as God has been degraded to a being scarcely a half-inch bigger than man, humans have assumed gigantic proportions in their own eyes. In consequence of this, professed Christians have felt at liberty to neglect major portions of Scripture and to be virtually untaught in and unaffected by the long history of the Christian church. The solemn assembly has simply fallen into oblivion at the hands of people too arrogant to know their own corporate sins, especially those heart sins of pride and unbelief and rebellion. These have created a nation ripe for destruction. <laughs> Getting the the foundation in place. One's view of the solemn assembly will be affected to a large degree by his understanding of the righteous judgments of God. As noted above, all Old Testament revivals have been preceded by some form of righteous judgment. It must be understood that those righteous judgments are the result of unconfessed corporate, and I would add, personal sins. When the people of God sin against him and do not repent, he judges them. While some of those judgments may be called final and consist of death and destruction, the more standard form of judgment is both remedial and gracious and consists of a withdrawal of certain evidences of his manifested presence and merciful and merciful favor. In the absence of God's manifest presence, there is always an immediate and extensive increase in iniquity. This may be compared to the effect upon a city of the police force going on strike. It is a visible manifestation of law and order in the form of policemen, police cars, etc., that keeps crime from, from exploding. When the police are on strike, when they're known to be corrupt themselves, or when it's known that arrests are meaningless because of the laxity of judges, a community must anticipate a tragic increase in crime. Just so, when God withdraws evidence of his manifest presence from a people, there is always a horrendous increase in iniquity and decline in spirituality. When a church, and this is my commentary, when a church begins to fight in itself, 
when a church begins to be harsh, when a pastor begins to be harsh, it's a sign that God is withdrawing his manifest presence. In a nation that walks in sin before God, there will be an increase of immorality and a decrease of true biblical spirituality. We have seen this in America in reasons beyond any question. Why has this very great change occurred? Is it because the devil is more powerful than he used to be or because God is older and not nearly able to defend himself? No. Obviously not. It's because God has judged America with remedial judgment of withdrawal of certain manifestations of his gracious presence. As soon as it becomes evident that immorality is on the increase and spirituality is on the decline, the biblically sound and spiritual lively church will not foolishly blame the world, but will immediately recognize will immediately recognize its own complicity. The church must first repent, for the righteous judgment was not against the world, but against the church. Therefore, in times of spiritual declension and moral decadence, the great duty of every Christian is to discover those sins which they have which have caused the judgment and to put them away by the method which God himself has chosen. And the method God has chosen is the solemn assembly. Corporate sin must be dealt with by corporate repentance according to divinely ordained methods. Now, solemn assemblies need to be a time when all normal daily work is set aside. This is the instruction of Leviticus 23, 34 through 36 and Numbers 29, 35, Deuteronomy 16, 8. While the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is in favor of hard work, it is absolutely clear that all work must be subjected to spiritual concerns. Just as man is to labor six days and six days only, and then to rest on the seventh, so also man is to labor in times of spiritual and moral adverse and advance. But he is to set aside this normal daily work in order to seek the face of God during times of righteous judgment. Solemn assembly is a time when the entire body of people affected by the righteous judgment is required to be in attendance. This is clear in the several passages on Old Testament revivals noted above, but nowhere more clear than in Joel, where even the honeymooners had to honeymoon revoked, and the mother with an infant at her breast was required to be present. Part of the corporate sin that must be put away is the spirit of rebellion that exists in many professed Christians that causes them to believe that no spiritual leader can order them about. Such wicked sinners would do well to observe the severity of the denunciations against rebellion and stubbornness recorded in 1 Samuel 15.23. A solemn assembly is for the pastor and for the people the presence of God to come and heal and restore. Solemn assembly, he continues, is a time of fasting. Rather than wandering concerning the physical significance of fasting, professed Christians would do well to face squarely the immediate spiritual importance. On a normal basis, we realize that the care of our bodies is a proper responsibility we assume before God. The care of ourselves is part of our normal service to God, but there are issues vastly more important than the care of our bodies. In fasting, a believing people acknowledge to God the urgent concern of the spiritual, that it takes precedence over the normal concerns of the physical. In short, fasting is an outward means of demonstrating that humility before God, which acknowledges that the discovery of all of those sins which have provoked his judgment and putting away of them is an orderly corporate manner 
is vastly greater than the consequence of feeling hungry in the body. Solemn assembly is a time of sacrifice. It's one of the greatest blessings God has given to mankind is the gift of time. What sacrifice could be more significant than the significance of time in order to participate fully in God's command method of reversing a righteous judgment against a church or a nation? A solemn assembly is a season of earnest prayer. Now we generally in the church allot time for too little prayer. We must take enough time to present requests to God, but precious little time is given corporately for God to present requests to man. But not only should much time be given to prayer at a solemn assembly, much time in prayer should be given in preparation for a solemn assembly. Solemn assembly is a mandatory occasion for corporate repentance. In preparation for this, a catalogue of sins to be corporately confessed and put away should be prepared in advance. Some churches have solicited the involvement of the entire congregation in this cataloging. Various entities within the fellowship have been asked to prepare lists of offenses against God and man that need to be corporately put away. A solemn assembly is an opportunity for spirit-anointed preaching for the searching truths of Scripture that deeply touch afresh the lives of God's people. It is a, a time, wonderful opportunity for children to see their parents and elders demonstrating Christianity at its deepest corporate levels. Since the entire family is summoned, the youth and the, the children have a special privilege of being touched by the solemnity of the day. Solemn assemblies gives God an opportunity to respond to his people at a level he cannot possibly do when they're living in neglect of his word in direct violation of his commandments. Historically, God has responded to solemn assemblies by sending fresh waves of blessings into both the personal and corporate lives of believers, and on some occasion even glorious revivals have, revol has, have resulted. One of the most amazing is the revival of the General Assembly in the Church of Scotland in 1596. John Davidson, a Scotland pastor, became burdened by the welfare of his beloved church and gave expression of concern at the Synod of Fife, 1593 and the assembly of 1594 his presbytery joined with him in petitioning the general assembly of the church to set aside time for a solemn assembly at the annual meeting in 1596 the assembly met at st gill's cathedral in edinburgh in march a very thorough catalog of sins was prepared which covered the misdeeds of every class of persons from the king on down to the meanest subjects. But more space was given to the sins of ministers than to the wickedness of all other classes put together. The solemn assembly occurred on Tuesday of the second week of the general assembly. There were some 400 men, mostly pastors, participating. John Davidson preached on Ezekiel 13. And 34, it dealt with lying prophets and shepherds who feed themselves and not their flocks. He then exhorted his brethren to enter into private meditations and confession. It was then that the Holy Spirit came down and the ancient cathedral church resounded with the sobs and cries of hundreds of ministers humbling themselves before God on the dirt floor. A public pledge of fresh surrender to God Almighty was called for in all but one of the men present joined in waving their hands as evidence of a binding commitment. This spirit of corporate repentance was carried into all the churches, and the revival of 1596 followed. But solemn assemblies must not be thought of merely as vestiges of the past. Recently, the First Baptist Church in Bogosa Springs, Colorado, was grievously affected by a divisive spirit. 
two of the censorious persons, a husband and wife, were, were removed from membership because of their continued troublemaking activities. Rather than church discipline bringing them to repentance for their wickedness, these persons led the way in filing three lawsuits against the church, claiming that two of them, plus eleven of their friends and relatives, were the true First Baptist Church of that community. The first suit was for all the church property and the bank accounts. The second suit was for $17 million in damages, $4 million for each the husband and the wife, $4 million each for the two daughters, plus an additional million in family damages, according to the pastor, Grant Atkinson. The third suit was a temporary injunction against the church, seeking to prevent the members from the use of their own building and finances. After much prayer and consultation, the congregation determined to obey the word of God in the resolution of the manor, and they called for a solemn assembly. For three weeks prior to the day of the assembly, extensive prayer was, was uttered the fourth to second day prior to the solemn assembly was devoted to general prayer and fasting. The day immediately preceding the assembly was was given to round-the-clock prayer with fasting. Virtually the entire congregation met for the solemn assembly itself and spent nine hours together in prayer, fasting, and corporate repentance. Three days after the solemn assembly, the four members of the family that had brought the suits against the church were all killed in the crash of a private airplane. As a direct result of the divine intervention, the damaged suits were dismissed and the temporary injunction was settled in favor of the church. The suit for the church property and the bank accounts was dropped and God himself crowned the faithfulness of the dear people of that congregation with a season of most blessed nearness. God's work, done in God's way, still triumphs. Historically, unheeded remedial judgments have turned into final judgments. America as a nation is ripe for destruction. The evangelical movement in this country is characterized by an arrogance that is almost beyond belief. The neglect of prayer, the involvement in Philistine methodology, the moral evils and the doctrinal corruption that characterize the movement are sufficient to cause sodomites to wonder at God's justice in destroying their city while sparing the United States. If the youth of this nation are to live out their lives in a land of freedom and opportunity, they will do so because their parents had the grace sufficient to humble themselves, to pray, to repent of their sins, and to seek God's face in solemn assemblies. Obedience is still better than sacrifice. Joel's call requires a prompt response. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. That is the article by Richard Owen Roberts. And I know the Lord has moved in my heart and said, call for a solemn assembly this Sunday. So I ask, please, would you cancel whatever plans you have? And would you be present in the house of the Lord? I want to tell you where we meet. And you are welcome to come. I consider all of you who listen to this broadcast members of the congregation of the National Prayer Chapel. Well, you may belong to other churches, and that's fine, but I consider you part of the family. I'm asking, will you come this Sunday at 12 noon, and we will begin to pray, 
and at 12.30, we will begin the formal part of the Solemn Assembly. We are located, the National Prayer Chapel, at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. It is at 14851 Gideon Drive. That's 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Now you can you can find more information about Solemn Assembly on the webpage nationalprayerchapel.com. You can also look at a map for directions to the National Prayer Chapel. It's a very simple place to find. We're located right beside the Hilton Memorial Chapel Event Center. Drive around to the back side of the All Saints Anglican Church and come in the basement door. It's ground level, double glass doors. Come in and you will find the National Prayer Chapel on your left-hand side. I invite everyone who has an interest in the National Prayer Chapel to come. And let's stand before the Lord. This will be just an introduction to the Solemn Assembly for later. I pray we can spend a whole day together in Solemn Assembly. I can't begin to describe the devastation that is occurring in America because of our corporate and personal sin. It is destroying the church, biting and devouring each other, prejudice, racism, the entertainment, the casualness, but most especially the pride and the offense. We are full of our own confident, bold opinions. The Lord wants a people who will humble their hearts, who will forgive, who will walk humbly before their God. I want to read for you Again, that passage in Isaiah 66. This is the one I esteem. He who is humbled, that is, he's been pressed down. And the one contrite in spirit, and literally the Hebrew means smitten, maimed. A person who trembles at my word. This is what God is calling for. A people who will humble their hearts before God. Who will forgive one another. Who will cancel everything. And say the Lord has called us. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. I want to read for you Jeremiah 17 in closing today. Jeremiah 17, let me begin with verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on the flesh for his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a, a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. And that is the condition of the American church. It's also the condition of the National Prayer Chapel. And this must change. 
Verse 7, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water, who sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It, It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to his deeds deserve. Today the Lord is searching your heart and your mind. And I am calling you to a solemn assembly to put away everything that is precious, all of your personal plans, My great concern is not for my own private personal welfare. My concern is for the turning of the church under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I must confess I have been defensive for my own personal position and my own personal desires. And I have repented and will continue to wait before God My confidence is in the Lord. I want to be a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream that does not have to fear when the heat comes. Well, the heat is here, and I fear. And that's why I'm calling for you and for me a solemn assembly. There are loved ones who need to come to Jesus, but we seem to have no influence on them because... Our lives are are so filled with our own personal pride, confident in our own truth, that we feel free to gossip and grumble and judge. I'm praying, O God, make me a smitten man, humble before you. And I call upon you to join Sunday in a solemn assembly. Again, we're meeting at the National Prayer Chapel. It meets at the All Saints Anglican Church. We will begin at 12 noon with corporate prayer. We are located at 14851 Gideon Drive in Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Please go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and in the blogs you will find this article that I've just shared with you by Richard Owen Roberts. Come to a solemn assembly. O Lord, I have shared your word with your people. I pray now you will move in their hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. This is Pilgrim's Progress. God bless you.